This podcast was recorded on Friday, September 25th at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Odds are against you when you're a new Democrat. pretty lonely journey sometimes to be a new Democrat, but NDP leader Jagmeet Singh has been racking up some pretty impressive victories of late. Today is a historic moment where we have, in the first time ever in this country's history, established a federal paid sick leave. On Friday, Singh pledged to support the Liberals' COVID-19 Economic Recovery Act and the throne speech, avoiding a federal election for now. Singh has emerged as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's preferred dance partner or perhaps in this case, his only willing partner. Until the pandemic hit, Jagmeet Singh had few wins to claim credit for under his belt. Last year, the NDP lost 15 seats in the election. With 24 MPs, it was the party's worst showing since 2004. But COVID-19 has put a number of the party's long-standing policy priorities on the front burner. Childcare, pharmacare, and expanded social safety net all are items the NDP has pushed for decades. Now the Trudeau government says they're part of its agenda. This pandemic has reminded us all that building strong social supports is essential to growing the economy. By Could this be the beginning of a fruitful relationship between the Liberals and the NDP? We'll talk to Jagmeet Singh about the risks of getting in bed with the grits. And then, of course, a lot has happened in the past three months. The WE scandal plagued the Trudeau government throughout the summer. I knew there would be questions asked because of the links to the family, but in no way was this benefiting my mother or my brother to be creating a grant program for students to volunteer in their communities right across the country. The opposition, of course, doesn't believe that. They think those pesky committee hearings are what caused Trudeau to pull the plug on Parliament this August which he did, but not before shuffling his top deck, saying goodbye to Finance Minister Bill Morneau and replacing him with the minister for seemingly everything. I, Christia Freeland, do solemnly and sincerely promise and swear. The Conservatives also elected a new leader. To the millions of Canadians that are still up, that I'm meeting tonight for the first time, good morning. I'm Aaron O'Toole. And so with that, and of course, the speech from the throne. This is not the time for austerity. The Prime Minister's address to the nation and rising COVID-19 cases in Canada's most populous provinces. It's all too likely we won't be gathering for Thanksgiving, but we still have a shot at Christmas. We have lots to chew on with our political panel. Kate Harrison, Carl Belanger, and Greg McEachran join us. Stick around. This is the first time ever in the history of our country that we have a federal program now for paid sick leave. What we have achieved will help millions of Canadians. That's the scale of the difference. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh claimed a big victory Friday. Once the bill is made public and uh, folks can review it, they will see what we were able to achieve was to essentially allow millions more access to, to this paid sick leave when before it was only thousands. While the financial costs to the public purse are unknown, for the Liberals, the price was too high to pay not to get a deal. 
if this agreement is reflected in the bill that's proposed, if the same language is there, we will support the bill and we will also uh, support the throne speech. We sat down with the man of the hour on Thursday when the NDP and the Liberals were still negotiating. Is this Sean good for you, Althea? I'm not video recording, so he could oh, be in his pajamas oh, for all I care. Yeah. I'm trying to set up my Sean in the background. I got my flag here. Got my moose over there. You see my moose? Yeah, I see your moose. Yeah. I got Tommy right here. You see Tommy? Yeah, Tommy Douglas. Yep. Hi, everybody. My name is Jagmeet Singh. I'm leader of Canada's NDP, and we're in my office in Ottawa, where I am in my office in Ottawa. Yes, because I'm in my home also in <laughs> Ottawa. <laughs> um, thanks very much for joining me. So I'm going to uh, start off by asking you about something you said yesterday in your press conference. I'm not looking for an excuse to go to an election. That is not my goal. I'm, I'm not going to back down because I'm afraid of election. I'm not afraid. But I don't want an election because I don't think that's going to help people. Now, you had asked the prime minister for two things in your meeting with him. You wanted paid sick leave and you wanted assurances that people who were on the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, CERB or the CERB, would not be forgotten uh, when they transitioned to the new EI system. You wanted to ensure that they would receive $2,000 a month and not the $1,600 a month the Liberals were suggesting when they proposed the change in August. Now, on Thursday, a day after the throne speech, where none of these two things were mentioned, the Liberals announced that they are moving with a new AI benefit that will be $2,000 a month, and they have announced a new Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit of a $500 a week for up to two weeks for workers who are sick and they must self-isolate for reasons related to COVID-19. Now, is this enough to ensure your support of the throne speech? Well, it is almost enough for us to ensure the support of this legislation. The first part is something that we were very clear on, that in a, in a second wave of this pandemic, the Liberal government's proposal to cut the help from 2000 to 1600 was wrong. And we fought back and we've now established that uh, the Liberal government will no longer do that. We've got them to accept that our proposition to keep it at 2000 is the right thing to do. So that was one big victory for people. The second piece we're still working on, we're actually in the middle of negotiations still, to make sure that the paid sick leave is there for Canadians, for workers when they need it. We've got some uh, problems with the access to this benefit that we're working out, but I'm very optimistic that we'll get there. What is it about the access in this bill, C2, that you're, that, like, what raised concerns in your mind that was not accessible enough to Canadians? Without in any way jeopardizing the, the negotiations going on, the, the problem is, is that we want to make sure that this paid sick leave is something that all Canadian workers can access whenever there is any concern about them being sick and making that impossible choice, going into work sick, risking exposing their colleagues or staying at home. You mean even if it's not related to COVID-19? Well, we just want to make sure that this is a real uh, paid sick leave that's, that's truly available to workers without uh, barriers. And, and I can't... Um, jeopardize the negotiations any further than just saying that we want to make sure the access is real. And I'm very optimistic we'll get there. Where the negotiations are going quite well, uh, this, this concern will be addressed. Would you be hoping that that program would be in place beyond the pandemic? Well, that is, that is what we hope. We've, we've laid down the argument for not just for paid sick leave during the pandemic, but uh, I want to see this first step as a first step towards a permanent paid sick leave for all Canadians now and forever. That is really my hope. 
a lot of the things that the Liberals are promising are things that actually depend on the cooperation of the provinces. There are also things that the Liberals have long promised. Pharmacare was in the throne speech last year in December. Uh, Childcare has been a promise for many decades. Do you trust the Liberals as a partner? What we have found is that the Liberals will not do it on their own. Every step of the way in this pandemic, we've had to fight them to do it. So I don't take them at their word when they say pharmacare. They've actually said pharmacare in the late 90s as well, but they haven't delivered on it in decades. And you're right with uh, childcare, the same thing. Decades of promises broken. Kids who were promised childcare are now having kids and there's still no childcare. Uh, and so I think that this is where the, the power that I have or the leverage that we have as as in this minority government is crucial to getting things done. Uh, but on the question of jurisdiction, it, it is something that comes up. But when you ask regular people, everyday folks, you know, they don't want to hear about jurisdictional excuses. They just want to see the thing done. They want to see pharmacare. They want to see childcare. And they don't want to hear people saying, oh, it's the province's fault or the federal government's fault. They just want to see it achieved. And I'm confident if we take the right steps at the federal level, we can get these things done. It's, it's going to be a benefit for everyone. As much as some of the conservative premiers are against pharmacare, once some premiers sign on and, they, and people see the benefit that it lowers the cost of medication, people can afford the medication they need, it's going to be very impossible for, for any premier to resist, to join onto a program that's going to save money and, and help out people. But you believe in national standards, from what I gather. Like, you don't support the premier's call to say, please give us a blank check without telling us what to do with it. Uh, I I absolutely believe that we need to come to to national standards. Of course, when it comes to healthcare, we have a Canada Health Act that has defended that healthcare healthcare should be public. Like, if you speak to a family member that's lost a loved one in a long-term care home and and talk to them about jurisdiction, they would be insulted. They want to see the help. They want to see better standards of care for those loved ones, however it's done. Everyone will agree that the worst conditions in long-term care homes were where they were privatized. So taking profit out of long-term care is something that all experts will agree on. And if the evidence makes out that, that, that case, I think we have to accept that evidence. And so we can make determinations based on the evidence and not and not make it about you know this province or that province or the federal versus provincial. It's about what's in the best interest of people. So really what you're calling for is publicly funded, provincially publicly funded long-term care in nursing homes. For, for long-term care homes, I think that we should remove, uh, without a question, we should remove uh, profit out of long-term care homes. And the federal government should play a role in helping to support and finance long-term care homes that are of the highest quality and provinces will continue to have that as their jurisdiction. But just like we have a Canada Health Act where the transfers are dependent on certain principles, we can work out a way to establish a transfer that's based on making sure seniors are cared for. So I asked about the trust question because one of your MPs for Nunavut, uh, Mamaluk Kak. I think is how we pronounce your last name. Kakak. Kakak. Um, she tweeted today 
that she doesn't think that as an indigenous, self-identifying indigenous MP, she doesn't believe that Trudeau has made meaningful steps towards reconciliation, but she doesn't believe the federal government has done a better job than previous parties. She doesn't believe the government is doing the best they can for indigenous people. Like this is not, and I don't want to get into a discussion about um, the liberals' uh, track record on indigenous issues, but if you have MPs that don't believe the liberals are a partner that they trust, that they can work for, how difficult is your challenge in working with the governing party if that trust is eroded? I assume she's not alone in your caucus to feel that way um, with a government that doesn't bend. Like, it must be hard to be in your position. It's The reality is the trust has been eroded not just with, with uh, members of, of the NDP uh, team, but also with Canadians in a lot of ways. There's been a lot of promises made that have been broken. There's been a lot of empty words that, that haven't resulted in people's lives being better. Like if you ask people, has your life improved when it comes to medication coverage, when it comes to, uh, for Indigenous people, clean drinking water in a, in a significant way? Has your life improved when it comes to uh, a host of things that the Liberal government's promised? And we look at people directly in a lot of areas, they've said a lot of things and they have not delivered the environment is another example. And specifically on Indigenous people, they were told that this that this Liberal government would be a, a, an ally and, and stand up for them, but the reality has fallen very far short. And so there has been trust eroded. And that's why I said before that for, for us and for me, the path isn't hasn't been a collaborative approach. It's been one where we fought for it. I don't expect that the Liberals will do things on their own out of the goodness of their heart, I think that when they're pushed and shoved and and we fight for the things, then we, we, we get wins. And so similarly, I understand our, our, our my colleagues' frustration because it hasn't been collaborative. It hasn't been easy. It's taken a lot of fighting and in some cases shaming to get action. And, and it's fair that people feel frustrated because the Liberals have promised a lot and haven't delivered what they promised. So how long do you think you could work with the Liberals? Uh, as long as they're willing to work with us to bring in support to Canadians, I'm willing to do that. If, you know, they bring forward legislation on the things that um, you and your party care about, could you see them lasting their full mandate, like another three years? Uh, yeah, if, if the goal for me, like the, the test is, if they continue to support us in bringing about things like, you know, paid sick leave is something we fought for. If they support us and bring that in, that's something we can continue to support. If we can continue to find ways to help people and they'll support us in helping people, then then we'll we'll continue to go. I don't want to see for me it's not it's not about finding a reason to tear down government. I want to use my position to get the help to people. And sometimes that means we have to go to an election. But I don't want that. I, I want to continue to fight for people and get them the help they need. So then is it fair to say that your goal would really be to support them for a full mandate? My goal is to support support people and and to use the position we have now to continue to do that while we have a position to do that. Because, you know, you're in a pretty sweet spot. The chances <laughs> that uh, we have an election and that you hold as much influence on the governing party um, are, I mean, I'm not a gambling person, but I'm not sure I, w I would gamble on that. Would you? 
Well, my goal is to become Prime Minister of Canada. So once, if, when we're the governing party, I'll, I'll probably have a lot of influence over the direction that we that we take as a, as a country. Well, if that is your goal, then, if you see political advantage in bringing down the government, you would. Well, the, the ultimate goal is helping people. And achieving that, I believe, the best way we can help people will be when we form government. Well, conservatives certainly are looking for an advantage and are trying to find a way to find a an opportunity to go to an election, that isn't our goal. Our goal isn't to try to strategically find the best position to, to go to an election. We're in a second wave now. Our goal is to get the help to people. And as, as we move forward, there's going to be a massive recovery. And so my goal is always going to be to avoid, um, is not to go to an election, is to find ways to get the help that people need right now, immediately, and in uh, a recovery stage. You are the only current um, opposition leader who is not at home with COVID-19. Um, has the coronavirus affected your life? Well, it's just, I'm really worried about people and, I, and I'm really worried about the impact on, on, on our country, on, on the world. So I, it's impacted me in the sense I'm really worried, but luckily my family is safe. Uh, I'm doing well and my health is good. My family's health is good. A lot of the folks close to me are, are healthy and, and everything is on that personal level, okay. Like there's a lot of worry and there's a lot of uh, putting a lot of thought, a lot of sleepless nights about how we can how we can respond to this in a way that, that doesn't continue the inequality. We're seeing small businesses shut down and the wealthiest get richer. Like that to me is, is really something I worry about. I feel like you talk in very like nebulous waves like on this hand maybe this on the other hand maybe that and I understand why on you know whether or not you're going to support the government you don't want to lay all your cards on the table because of course um then you lose well any um any influence that you might have but on the idea of like how long and how likely you're willing to work with the liberals if your goal is to become prime minister as you've said just said then your partisan goals trump the policy objectives that you may try to to enact with the liberals because you've just said basically that you don't trust them and you think that you would be um you would be better but i mean we're not obviously having this discussion in a vacuum. Your party is at 17% in the polls. The chances that you become prime minister are pretty slim. I'm sorry. I don't mean to insult you, but it is not, you know, we would be having a different discussion if you were at even 30% in the polls. So you clearly are more simpatico with the liberals than you are with the conservatives. I don't see the conservatives bringing forward a child care plan like this. I don't see the conservatives bringing forward a farmer care plan like this. So is this not like the best dance partner you've had? And then therefore, is it not in your interest to move on all the things that you say you care about by working with them? And in some cases, maybe kind of doing it reluctantly in light of, you know, I think of the wee scandal and whatever else might pop up in the next few years. So I think I, I understand your question now, and I, and I can give you the the frame that helps I, I, you know present what I'm saying in a way that that um, challenges that frame. 
the difference between New Democrats and Liberals is our goal isn't just power. The Liberals are absolutely always looking for how do we get in power. New Democrats clearly do not choose that path. Odds are against you when you're a New Democrat. So it's not like you choose this path because you're like, this is a sure path to power. And that's why it's, it's a bit different. The equation of a New Democrat is very different than that of Liberals and Conservatives. They make decisions to get into power. We make decisions to help people. I believe, though, I would be able to help people the most if I was in government. But my number one reason why I'm here is to help people. And that sometimes doesn't align with pure political strategy. If I was purely about being political, I would have tried. I would have been a liberal. But I'm not. I'm an idealist who wants to make the world a better place. And I want to fight for people. I'm also pragmatic about fighting for people. And that's why I look at people as my main focus. How do I help them? And sometimes it's hard to understand in a lens of purely partisan politics. It's not like the liberals were about to do some of these things. They were going down a completely different path. They were going to cut the help to people to, to $1,600, not realizing people are barely getting by. And 2000 is not like a luxurious amount of money. It's just enough to get by. And they were callously willing to cut the help that people need in a pandemic. A lot of the punditry around whether or not you will support the liberals is about whether or not the party is election ready. And when we uh, look at where you are in the polls and where your fundraising is and what uh, the debt levels are that the party still um, has incurred, um, it looks like you are not financially in a position that uh, would make you want to go into an election. Are you election ready? Yes, uh, we're in a far better position than we were in the, before the last election. Personal numbers, polling, um, there's a range between 17 and 20. And so we're far better in a far better position than we were in the last election. But again, it's not my goal. I'm not, I'm not trying to find a way to go to an election. I'm trying to find a way to get the help that people need. You'd be in a better position in the spring, though, if I understand correctly. Like you have to pay off a debt in November, which looks like you can do. And then you could go back to the bank and say, I need more money to find a campaign. We, you know, we, the more time we have to fundraise is certainly helpful, but we are ready to go anytime. And candidate recruitment? Candidate recruitment is going really well. So I want to talk to you about um, your own leadership. You know, uh, three years ago, almost to the day, uh, you were elected leader of the NDP. And at the time, there was a lot of excitement around your potential as a leader. People were talking about you like you would be the Justin Trudeau of the NDP, that, you know, there would be a swell, a groundswell of support. We actually haven't seen that happen. We did see you uh, be able to connect quite well with people during the last campaign. I'm thinking about like the blackface incident with the prime minister, your response to that, um, your performance in the English debate. Why do you think that hasn't happened? Well, I, I would disagree with you. I'd say we had massive support uh, in, in all public opinion polling throughout the campaign where people said their most preferred leader uh, still that remains. You There's lost been lost 15 seats. We went into the election with potential of winning zero seats. So we went from zero to 24. It was a massive success. We didn't, you oh, know, wow. that, is, that is some recasting. Well, you, you don't start an election at where you were in 2015. You start the election where you're in 2019. In 2019, with a very popular liberal leader, we were in a very bad position. And that's the fact. Every election is fought on where you are, not where you were. I wouldn't fight an election. The election that I fight in the future is not going to be based on um, where I am, where I was in 2019. It's going to be based on where I am at the moment of the election. Is that, so, is that why you were dancing? Because I know a lot of people, especially uh, Quebec New Democrats, when they 
basically were reduced to one seat in the province were like, why is he dancing? This is a disaster. No, it was, uh, we went into the election, a lot of folks said we'd win zero seats and, and they weren't wrong. Uh, when we started, we were in a really bad, bad spot. And to go from zero to 24 felt like a pretty exciting moment. Can you talk to me about um, how your relationship, or I guess what your relationship is with the government? Like you talked about um, you've had to do hard things and fighting. Like they don't seem to be uh, very consultative. Like they seem to come to the opposition parties when they absolutely need their vote in part because uh, in the spring at least, um, everything had to be decided unanimously between the parties. Now we're entering Parliament where they don't need to make things unanimous unless, of course, they're changing the rules or things like that, but they only need one dance partner. Um, how, like, are you in constant contact with the government? Uh, is the is the, your office in constant co- contact with the government? Like, how how do things actually work behind the scenes? I would say there's regular contact. And our offices have regular contact. And then every now and then, uh, when negotiations get to the point where there's an impasse, then uh, the prime minister and I have a conversation. How often have you spoken to him in the last year? During the pandemic, I would say it was it was every other week. Okay. Uh, during the, the hardest part of it in the, in the immediate lockdown. And, and since, uh, more sporadic. So, yeah, it, but the thing is, it's not been one... You're absolutely right. It's not been um, a, a collaborative approach. We fought every step of the way to either improve a program or to present it in the first place. So in the first place, I remember specifically asking the prime minister, how are we going to help people when people can't go to work? And the initial response was, we'll make it easier to get EI. But I came back with, you know, 60% of Canadians can't access EI. So we fought for serve. And we fought to make it accessible to everybody. Initially, it was $1,000. We fought for it to be 2000 When students were ignored, we fought for them to be included. Seniors were forgotten about, we fought for them. People living with disabilities, we also included supports for them. And then the wage subsidy was initially at 10%. We fought for it to be at 75% so workers could still keep their jobs. Every step of the way, we fought to include more people while they were being forgotten or ignored by the Liberal government. So if the debt is $400 billion, it's your fault? Uh, if the response has been more compassionate and caring and left less people behind, you can thank New Democrats for that. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Jagmeet Singh is the leader of Canada's NDP. I spoke to him on Thursday. And of course, I meant to say a $400 billion deficit. The debt is projected to be at least trillion next March. To overcome a pandemic requires the work and resolve of every order of government, of every community, and of every one of us. The federal government will have your back, whatever it takes to help you get through this crisis. Every speech from the throne has been uh, promises of of massive spending and tax increases. This is no different. I know some people are asking how we can afford to do all this for Canadians. That's fair. Low interest rates mean we can afford it. The government will make a significant, long-term, sustained investment to create a Canada-wide 
early learning, and childcare system. Well, they've been promising childcare since like the late 90s. The government remains committed to a national universal pharmacare program and will accelerate steps to achieve the system. Climate action will be a cornerstone of our plan to support and create a million jobs across the country. I know that you're worried. I know that you're worried about your kids going to school. I know you're worried about paying the bills. I know you're worried about your jobs. I know you're worried about your loved ones and our elders in long-term care homes. I know you're seeing the numbers rising and you're worried about a second wave. I want you to know that like we've done throughout this pandemic, we see you, we hear you, and we're going to keep fighting for you. Mr. Trudeau says we're all in this together, but Canada has never been more divided. We've looked at this speech from the, the throne and Conservatives cannot support it. Le gouvernement Trudeau. The Trudeau government has a week uh, to pro, uh, um, increase uh, health care uh, transfers. Uh, otherwise, uh, the bloc will vote against the throne speech. Uh. My wife, Rebecca, and I have COVID-19. We have been isolating here at home, like thousands of Canadians have throughout this pandemic. In our four biggest provinces, the second wave isn't just starting. It's already underway. The numbers are clear. Back on March 13th, when we went into lockdown, there were 47 new cases of COVID-19. Yesterday alone, we had well over a thousand. Hi, my name is Kate Harrison, and I'm a former Conservative staffer and a Vice President at Summa Strategies. I'm Greg McCachran. I'm Senior Vice President at Proof Strategies, and I'm a former Liberal staffer. I'm Carl Belanger. I'm the President of Traction Strategies and a former National Director of the NDP. Thanks, guys. And you all sound great. Um, I'm really... Of course we do. <laughs> it's so <laughs> nice to reconnect with you after three months. I feel like so much has happened in the last three months. Um, I want to start off by asking you about uh, Jagmeet Singh while the drama is kind of over. But I wanted to ask you more about how long you think the NDP can continue to play kingmaker and how long the NDP can possibly continue to support a political party, especially when it becomes marred in controversy like the We Charity and whatever other scandal that possibly might emerge in the coming months. Um yeah, let's start there. Maybe I'll start with Carl, because you probably have thought about this a lot more than uh, most people. Yeah. Um, the thing is that it's all about the price that the party in power is willing to pay to stay in power. And the more it is mired in controversy, the more they're likely to, you know, concede points and give wins to the other party. The flip side of that, of course, is that the more the governing party is mired in controversy, the heavier the political price uh, has to be paid by the minor partner to prop up that party. Uh, because, the, of course, the other opposition and the media will point out that you are keeping in power a party that is mired in controversy. So it's that balance that needs to be found. Um, uh, to be honest, if you had asked me the question uh, in August when we were in the midst of the WE scandal, I would have said that, uh, you know, the price would have been quite heavy for the Liberals to count on anybody's support. 
But as that scandal has been fading away and moving away from the front front page, uh, you can see that uh, that uh, the, the value. Uh, that that was needed to support the liberals went down a little bit. Um, so it all depends what's up next. And when the committee start redigging into those controversies, that's when we'll see how long this government can survive. So really, we're basically at the sweet spot for the NDP where they're not paying a very heavy political price at the moment. Not paying a very heavy price. And, and also that they are able to point to some wins uh, in the throne speech, which allows them to say, see what we were able to achieve. Just think what we could achieve if we were the government. Yeah, it, to me, it makes me think of uh, the NDP under Jack Layton and his role in uh, propping up the Paul Martin government with that uh, $4.9 billion budget the NDP likes to remind us about. Um, but also its role in bringing down the Martin government on that confidence vote in November and basically ushering in a decade of Stephen Harper. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that there were negotiations about health care at the time, and the Paul Martin government was not willing to budge on the NDP demands. So eventually, you have to put your money where your mouth is. If you're not willing, as a, as, as an, as a coalition partner or a minor partner in propping up a minority government, if you're not willing to bring them down, then uh, your bluff was going to be called. And, uh, and, and sometimes the governing party uh, calls the bluff wrongly. Greg, what do you think the risk for the Liberals are of getting into bed with the NDP? Well, Carl was just talking about 2005, and you can really make former NDP staffers set their hair on fire when you bring up childcare. And Carl and I are probably going to agree to disagree about what happened there, but the reality is, for about 15 years, this is something that the NDP have had to continue to explain. There's a big difference right now because of the pandemic. I think it's there is a big appetite from the public to see their politicians working together. Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier Ford are onto this. They were at each other's throats during an election a year ago, and now they're doing events together. So obviously, there's something that they're picking up on from the public. You know, the Prime Minister's saying today, Canadians don't care about jurisdictions. I think he's he's correct. Um, what the Liberals have to do is find that sweet spot with the NDP and perhaps other uh, opposition parties as well, where they look like they're collaborating and not being pushed around. Uh, because some of the comments that the prime minister has made um, has indi ha have indicated that. Because once Canadians perceive that you are just doing anything to hang on to power, you might as well get out. You're, you're just pushing off the inevitable. I was struck that, uh, you know, speaking with the prime minister today, he like went out of his way not to credit Jagmeet Singh with the $500 uh, a week and said, oh, no, the sick leave, that was that was John Horgan. <laughs> that was an NDP demand, even though publicly the liberals are out like saying, acknowledging that the NDP, that this was something that they had um, basically kowtowed to back in June in order to get the NDP's agreement. The idea of paid sick leave was actually brought forward by Premier John Horgan uh, in our First Minister's conversations, where he highlighted that uh, as this fall was unfolding and as flu season arrived, and reminding everyone to get their flu shot this fall, um, as the flu season arrived, uh, people would have a sniffle uh, or begin to develop symptoms and be in a very difficult position of knowing, listening to public health authorities, that they should stay home and self-isolate, but maybe not being able to afford 
to miss a day of work. Kate, what do you think? Um, I mean, it seems like we've seen Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives actually take advantage of the fact that there is this NDP liberal alliance and this vacuum opening up with former blue liberals and people who are really concerned about government spending. Yeah, for sure. And it, it helps Aaron O'Toole to have a little bit more time to actually brand himself, put some policy alternatives together, uh, get his campaign team together. So I, definitely having the NDP support the Liberals is is helpful. It does also, uh, to your point, Althea, create more of an incentive to go after those middle voters. Uh, we already hear even within some disgruntled members of Liberal Caucus about uh, the spending spree that's happening at the higher levels. So uh, is that an opportunity for the Tories to not necessarily come out and you know say, we need to rein in everything right away, but at least for those that are concerned about the more of the long-term um, long-term implications of this spending, uh, presenting an alternative plan for them. So uh, I think, uh, you know, the, the NDP, for their part, are probably delaying the inevitable by not pulling the plug. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a, a game of chicken, right? They've got uh, all of these great policy ideas and ambitions uh, that the Liberals are, are mowing their lawn with. Uh, so if you believe that contrast wins campaigns, there's not a whole lot of contrast between Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau, at least when it comes to policy these days. So uh, how long does the NDP wait for another scandal to present itself and then run a campaign on ethics? We could be waiting a while. We could have a totally different leader by the time that happens. I'd like to um, ask you briefly if if you actually think this government could live out its entire mandate, because I asked Jagmeet Singh that and he didn't say no. I know, Greg, you want to get in. No, I, I, I think uh, I think that's actually a, a, a distinct possibility. But the other thing to keep in mind, you know, there's a there's a group within the NDP that always want to be in opposition. There's a group that want to be in in government. Um, you know, I, I know you know Premier Daryl Dexter in Nova Scotia had this. Uh, I think Bob Ray will talk about this. So this is another challenge. Is you know, are you uh, listening to the part of your party that wants you to be in an effective opposition party and win better things for Canadians, or do you have the eyes? your eyes on the prize. And I'm not sure that the latter is actually something that's a possibility right now for Singh. Carl, you want to add to that? Well, you can accomplish a lot of things in politics if you don't uh, if you don't seek credit. Uh, but you can accomplish a whole lot more things if you do get credit. And <laughs> that's the challenge that Singh is facing. I do not see this government going the full four years of its mandate. There's no stable partnership of any kind. There's no, um, you know, uh, uh, confidence and supply agreement like there was in BC. And as we just saw in BC, in fact, even when you have that kind of yes. agreement, the trigger can be pulled anyway. Yeah. Kate? It's going to be a tough balance for the prime minister to have a message, to run on a message of needing uh, stability and caring for Canadians during a crisis, but justifying that it's okay to go to the polls. And if we are still looking at a scenario where a vaccine is two, three, four years away um, from, from coming to Canada, then maybe there is a possibility that the Liberal government, I, I think four years is probably the outer limit, but if we're having this conversation, you know, in the spring of 2022, we still haven't had an election, that wouldn't surprise me. Uh, because where the Prime Minister is very comfortable, and I think we got to this in his national address, is in dealing in the immediacy of the pandemic. The longer that can be reasonably prolonged while still being truthful and not being seen to play off, play off of people's fears, 
Uh, I think that that's safe and comfortable ground for him. He can continue to govern as he has been with the support of the NDP uh, and kind of ride that popularity that he had at the beginning of spring when things were quite bad uh, for a considerable part of the rest of the mandate. Let's talk about that national address and the speech from the throne. Um, did Were either, in your views, uh, justified? Were the Liberals justified in asking the broadcasters for time for that message? Uh, was it a good strategic move for the Liberals to basically allow Aaron O'Toole to introduce himself to the country? Um, was there anything in the speech from the throne that surprised you? Um, Greg. In terms of the national address, I know that there's a lot of criticism uh, around this, but I think about the audiences. The audience is not, you know, people like us who watch the speech from the throne, the pre-coverage, the speech, the post-coverage some of us participated in. Uh, we don't, not everyone lives on Twitter. And so when you look at 6.30 p.m. in the Eastern time zone, 7.30 in Atlantic Canada, you're getting a huge swath of people that might not have seen it during the day. I liked the message about Thanksgiving is out, Christmas, we better get our act together. I say this as somebody who has, uh, personally, in March and April, I didn't know if I was going to continue to have a job. I had clients that have lost their jobs. I have clients that have lost their entire business model. I People that I've worked with for a number of years have been laid off. So I I've, I look at this you know, from the point of view of the people that have been economically insecure, not those people who have been you know, pulling down almost $200,000 as a member of parliament since March and have had no, no worries. So I'm not all that upset about the criticism. What I'm hoping is, as I'm sitting here during a week where we're seeing numbers in Ontario and Quebec return to numbers that we saw in April, it, it, it quite scares me. I, I live my stage two life in a stage three, three world. I cannot get sick. I, you know, I, I can't afford to lose the time from my job. Um, and I'm, you know, as the oldest person on this panel, I worry about the long-term healthcare effects. Um, I think the Prime Minister could have been stronger, though. I thought of the four leaders, Singh really read the room, that his sober, serious comments were bang on. If you listen to what people have said about Aaron O'Toole, they keep saying one word over and over again, China. Why was the leader of the opposition talking about China on something like this? I don't get it. Um, in terms of the bloc leader, um, you know, it, it's... It's one more example where I, I start to wonder if he understands how federal politics work when you give an ultimatum to, for a, a government to turn around a check in a week. It's just not realistic. I can't see even his his uh, most adamant of supporters uh, following that line of thinking. Well, maybe it's possible that he didn't want the Liberals to get to a yes. <laughs> Perhaps so. Perhaps so. Uh, Carl? Well, um I, first of all, I can't believe that at 35, Greg is the oldest member of this band. Uh, I have trouble to believe that. Uh, second, uh, I did not understand the need for the uh, address to the nation when basically what he did was a rehash of the throne speech in the afternoon, which was basically a rehash of the two election platform they just ran on, 2015-2019, and most of the elements that were already in the 2019 throne speech with just some, uh, you know, a few nods given to the pandemic and the emergency measures that we already knew about. So a few tweaks here and there. But in 7,000 words, you would think there would have been a few things that would blow people away. Uh, you would think that if he had felt the need to add more three hours later, 
that he would have had something to blow people away. And instead, he told us that Thanksgiving was canceled and maybe we had a shot at Christmas. Um, I don't know. Is that what we prorogued uh, Parliament for? Uh, frankly, I was disappointed. Uh, I think that the messaging could have been a little sharper, a little bolder, especially considering the leaks and the hype that was created by some leaks from the PMO in the lead up to these events. Uh, I don't think that what we received uh, uh, delivered on the hype that was created, on the expectations that were created. Um, but it may be just good enough for what Justin Trudeau needed to do, which is secure support of one party to get his own speech through and, and live another day until maybe the next budget in the spring. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, I would even not just say that leaks from the prime minister's office. I mean, even when the prime minister announced that he had asked the governor general for prorogation, he laid out like expectations that we would have a vastly different country uh, after maybe uh, two or three liberal mandates, that this was going to be a visionary document. Um, Kate, I see you nodding your head. And that was the justification that was used to prorogue to begin with, right, was that this was a major reset. And, you know, I don't think anybody on this panel would disagree that we're in a very different situation now than we were a year ago. And, of course, that is going to change the focus of a government. But other governments have managed to continue on without proroguing. So in my view, looking at the document on Wednesday and thinking back to the justification that was provided in August, to me, it's very clear that the reason to prorogue was not really a major agenda reset. It was to get away from a messy scandal. Let's talk about Aaron O'Toole because we haven't had a chance. That is also something that happened this summer. Um, should we expect Aaron O'Toole to bring a different style, a different tone to the Conservative Party? What... What does Aaron O'Toole's victory mean for the Conservative Party brand? I think he has brought a different style and a different tone already. Um, first of all, he's a far better communicator uh, than the previous leader uh, ever was, even though the previous leader had a lot more practice. Um, he has made a direct effort to try and be more uh, inclusive and uh, it, it, he's got diversity on top of mind. He has made clear that he would like the party to reflect Canada. Uh, that's not something that we often hear conservative leaders in particular talk about. Uh, and I think it's a, a step in the right direction. Uh, you know, in terms of uh, policy focus, I, I think that he, he's certainly playing to his, his base in Western Canada. I'm anxious to see what the conservatives propose on some of the big policies that the liberals have laid out like pharmacare, like childcare, for example, I don't think it's going to be enough to just criticize those things and not have some kind of an alternative. So um, I think that he's bringing a different energy to this leadership, one that's more thoughtful uh, and considered uh, than, than, those, uh, than those past. Uh, and yeah, I, I think that Canadians so far have not been uh, at all turned off by, by what they've seen of him. And um, he's setting a more positive tone, a more forward looking tone. Yeah, unfortunately, he is um, in his basement at home uh, with his wife with COVID-19. I'm sure that's not the start that the Aaron O'Toole team was expecting. Not at all, but it, I would say that it has served as a bit of a reality check, right? Um, you know, there, there's nothing that puts the pandemic into more focus. Not that they necessarily needed it, but it, it puts it into very clear focus that this is a, a real problem. He was in line with others for six, seven hours waiting for a test in Ottawa. Um, and, and that's something a lot of people are dealing with. So um, it's a bit of a, a, a humbling experience. It, it, yeah, it's been a roller coaster five weeks for him, but I think certainly um, 
has has served as a reality check that the pandemic is still here and and alive and we need to be taking it seriously as a party. Carl, what do you think of Aaron O'Toole's leadership? Well, it's too early to say. Uh, I think he is trying to expand the universe, which is the number one thing a party leader should do. And, and we saw that with his appeal to um, a category of voters, which is often overlooked, the orange-blue switcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of switch voters that went from the NDP to the Reform Party in the early 90s. Those kind of voters who are basically anybody but liberals, who are not ideological, but are usually going with the parties that fight for the little guy, fight for the ordinary families, fight for the, uh, you know, um, the people that are not part of the so-called Laurentian elite. So those voters, uh, I think, uh, is a smart play for O'Toole to go after. Um, uh, at the same time, um, uh, he has around his neck the weight of the social conservative wing of the party, which as much distance as he tries to put between him and th- their position, they're in his caucus, they're going to be allowed to run for him, and you can be sure that the Liberals will make A with it, and, and New Democrats will, will do as well. Uh, so how do you how do you deal with that? How do you allow Leslie Lewis and Derek Sloan to keep going and pushing their agenda while saying, no, that debate is over? Greg, should the Liberals be worried about Aaron O'Toole? Yeah, absolutely, because this is the second leader, um, and you know, hope, you know, one would think that they have learned uh, from some of the mistakes. I want to briefly um, touch on, uh, well, three upcoming contests. Um, We haven't talked about the Green Party in a very long time. Uh, They are choosing a new leader (laughs) next weekend. And then there's two by-elections at the end of October in York Centre and Toronto Centre. Does the outcome of any of these contests matter? Well, uh, in theory, the Green Party is a wild card, can be a wild card, and has been a wild card, certainly at the provincial levels in, in different jurisdictions, PEI and BC and, and even New Brunswick it comes to mind. Um, the problem is, I mean, I don't think I could name you more than one candidate for that leadership race, um, namely Glenn, Glenn Murray, who has been a provincial liberal, a federal liberal, uh, you know, um, and he's now running for the Green Party. Um, he has the potential because he, he is a, I mean, he's a good politician. Um, he has a potential to be a wild card. The others are unknown entity. Um, so I couldn't pr- project anything. In terms of the by-elections, I mean, I would be quite surprised if there were uh, any kind of upset in those by-elections. They should remain okay. uh, firmly liberals. Um, uh, so I don't think they matter that much. Okay. Uh, you know, it, it's hard to know because Elizabeth May has been their their sole leader federally. Whether or not the lack of success for the Greens is well, by the virtue last of her. Fifteen plus years, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. But the lack of that recent political success and not being able, especially in the last election, to translate any of the goodwill that they went in with and the accessible voter pool that they went in with to a minimal outcome in, in the House of Commons. Is that her fault? Is that just Canadians not really uh, siding up to the Green Party as a as an effective political body? Um, so I, I'd say that it's a big opportunity for the new leader. And I agree with Carl's instinct. I, I don't foresee any changes in Toronto Centre or uh, York Centre. Or uh, York Centre. York Centre. Yeah. Yeah. Toronto Centre. York Centre. Yeah. Got it. No change. <laughs> Um, I, I did know of a second candidate because, uh, I, if I'm pronouncing her first name correctly, Annamie Paul mm-hmm. is running 
uh, as for the green leadership, but also is going to be the green candidate in Toronto Centre. Yeah. That being said, if she was to win Toronto Centre, I would be very surprised. Um, I think the challenge for the Green Party right now is very similar to what the Conservative Party uh, has gone through in the last two leadership. Are they the Stephen Harper Party or the Conservative Party? Is it the Green Party or the Elizabeth May Party? And, you know, let's be clear, Liberals have certainly benefited from uh, Elizabeth May's, you know, more times than not complimentary, you know, comments or support of the Liberal government. Um, Call it cheerleading. Okay, well, that's she's very word. fond of the prime minister, even though she doesn't agree <laughs> oh, with yeah. many of his policy proposals, like buying a. I was going to say the liberals have benefited from her lack of efficacy. Uh. <laughs> so you know, to my point, apparently you all agree. <laughs> <laughs> but they, you know, the the thing is with the leadership change, um, they don't know if they necessarily will continue to count on that. I'm not sure that the new leader will have necessarily the same soapbox um, that, that Elizabeth May has. Elizabeth May will probably continue to have that for a long, long time. Um, you know, tell me, uh, Althea, if I'm, I'm wrong, but I think, you know, I think reporters enjoy her because she generates a good quote. Absolutely. She definitely generates. A, she's also incredibly accessible. Um, but I think you're right in some ways. She was she came from the Sierra Club and she will continue to be a, like a David Suzuki-esque figure. Yeah. Um, so I will just throw and say that um, I sent 23 questions to all eight candidates uh, and they have filled them out. So you can go to HuffPost.ca and cool. you can read uh, everything from what they're afraid of to what they would change in the party. Um, That's exciting. Does that, does that include the candidate that was kicked, that was kicked out and then she, is now back on? Yes, Miriam Haddad. It includes her as well. Yes. <laughs> See, you know two people. Well, yeah. <laughs> Guys, thank you so very much. It was a pleasure chatting with all of you. I really appreciate it. Happy thank to chat. Kate Harrison is a vice president at Summa Strategies. Greg McEachern is a senior vice president at Proof Strategies. And Carl Belanger is the president of Traction Strategies. Well, that's our show. If you enjoyed this episode on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your feedback or any story ideas. You can reach me through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram at Althea Raj is my handle. That's A-L-T-H-I-A-R-A-J. A very big thank you this week to Ottawa reporter Zian Lum, who helps me produce this show, and to Louisa Cruz, our technical producer this week. I'm Althea Raj. See you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.